listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, so our sermon this evening is called The Bullseye, and we're picking up our series in the Sermon on the Mount right where we left off last week. And our text this evening is going to be Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Let's go ahead and jump right into it. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Just kind of highlight that in your brain. He says, I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Now, when Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, that phrase right there, the law and the prophets, was kind of in, it was an idiom that was used to refer to all of the Hebrew scriptures, what you and I would call the Old Testament. It was the Bible that they had. So Jesus is saying, don't think I've come to get rid of, to abolish the Hebrew Scriptures, the Bible. Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I've come to fulfill them. Now, here's the first question. Why do you think Jesus even has to say this? Why does he have to lead his teaching saying, don't think I've come to do this? It only makes sense to me if he's saying this in response to the fact that some people were saying, that he had come to abolish the law and the prophets. It seems as though there would have been some religious leaders who were spreading this rumor that, man, this guy's a lawbreaker. He doesn't adhere to the law. Now, why would people think that about Jesus? There are three things that come to my mind. Number one, first of all, Jesus taught that love is the fulfillment of the law. If you go towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, somebody asks him, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, well, there's two of them, and you can't pull them apart. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, this is what the whole law and prophets hang upon right there. In other words, if you take the whole Bible, if you take all of the Hebrew scriptures, everything, and you just boil it down to its essence, here's what it's telling you to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That's what it's all about. The whole law and prophets, love God, love people. Now, I grew up in church, and one of the terms I learned very early on in, in church life was legalism. How many of you are familiar with that term, legalism? I've only ever heard that word in, in a church context. What is legalism? A legalist is somebody who gets a sense of worth and value from their ability to keep the rules. Whether those rules are in the Bible or added, 
A legalist is somebody who's getting a sense of self-esteem and worth and value from being a rule keeper. We, we're, we keep the rules. We abide the rules. Those sinners out there, they break the rules. But we're the righteous ones who keep the rules. Well, if that's what you're getting life and worth from, if somebody comes along and says, you know what? It really just all boils down to loving God and loving people. That's really what it's all about. Well, to a legalist, you don't want to hear that. You see, because it's taking away your idol. It's taking away the thing, the mechanism by which you're getting a sense of worth and value. So you don't want to hear it. Don't say that it's all about love. Now, there were legalists back then in Jesus' day, but they're also legalists today. And when they hear about the, you know, the love of God and how we're supposed to love each other, they might say, well, yeah, of course we're supposed to love, but, but you know what? God, God also needs to crack down on sin. And he's commissioned us to crack down on sin. Not all sin, of course. You don't want to do that. And certainly not our sin, because our sin is the, the tiny, little, bitty, minuscule sins that don't really bother God all that much. No, what we really need to do is crack down on those big sins, the, the deal-breaker sins, the ones that really tick God off. It's those people's sins, not our sins, but their sins. So when you come around and you begin to say, you know what, it really just comes down to loving God and loving one another, well, to someone who's getting life from being a rule keeper, it can sound like you're wanting to abolish the law and just get rid of it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Not only did Jesus not crack down on sinners like the religious leaders did and wanted him to do, he actually hung out with them. He befriended them. He was called the friend of sinners, the worst sinners in people's judgment. In first century Jewish culture, the worst sinners that, you know, those people that were considered the worst sinners were prostitutes and tax collectors. And yet these people gravitated to Jesus and Jesus invested in them and he welcomed them. And he spent time and hung out with them. And, and when they invited him to dinner, he shared meals with them, which is kind of scandalous. In that culture, to share a meal with someone, you were making a strong social statement. You're saying, these are my people. I identify with these people. So when the legalist looks at this, of course they get outraged. Man, these prostitutes and tax collectors just gravitate to him. And you know, birds of a feather always flock together. And you can judge the character of a man by the company he keeps. And so they just decided that Jesus is a sinner. And they called him glutton. They called him drunkard. They painted him as a sinner because he hung out with other sinners. You know, this, this must mean this guy is a rule breaker. He's a law breaker. And he wants to abolish the law. He wants to just abolish the whole Bible. And the thir third thing is this, sometimes, to be honest with you, at least to me, it seems as though Jesus is playing a bit fast and loose with the rules. He certainly doesn't seem like one of these anal, rigid rule keepers. Often, he seems to even set the law aside, or at least the common understanding of the law. For example, one of the things that was really a big deal with, with the Pharisees and the religious leaders was the Sabbath. You know, on the Sabbath day, you, you got you to gotta keep the Sabbath. Do, don't do any work on the Sabbath. You have to rest on the Sabbath. And they had all kinds of rules and guidelines for how to do that. And yet when you read the Gospels, like we've been studying the Gospel of Mark on Wednesday nights for the last few months. And when you look in the Gospel of Mark, right from the get-go, Jesus really breaks all of those ideas and conventions. You know, he allows, in chapter two of Mark, he allows his disciples to, to pick grain 
on the Sabbath day because they were hungry. You weren't supposed to do that, according to the religious elite. And then over and over again in the Gospel of Mark and all of the Gospels, Jesus heals people on the Sabbath day, which apparently they, you weren't supposed to do that either. In fact, I get the impression when I read the Gospels, sometimes it seems as though Jesus purposefully waits until the Sabbath to heal someone. It's almost like he wants to tick off the religious leaders, not just for the fun of it, but he's trying to shock some sense into them. He's saying, listen, guys, the Sabbath day exists for the good of humankind. The reason we even have the Sabbath is to form us into a worshiping and just society. The Sabbath serves people, but the people don't exist to serve the Sabbath. And as it is with the Sabbath, so it is with the entire law. The law exists for us. We don't exist for the sake of the law. But see, for the legalists, then and now, man, that can really tick them off. It sounds like you're abolishing the law, Jesus. In John chapter 8, there's a story where these scribes and Pharisees, they find this woman who they have caught in the act of adultery. Now, how they caught this woman in the act of adultery, I don't know. How do you do that if you're minding your own business, first of all? Oh, and by the way, where's the man who was in this incident? Last I checked, that, that involved two people. But they find this woman, they've caught her in the act of adultery, however they did that, and they drag her to Jesus because they see this woman as a tool that they can use to trap Jesus. And they drag this woman to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. It's undeniable she's guilty. And Jesus, you know, in the law, it says that such a woman, such an adulterer, should be stoned to death. What do you say? And, and what's interesting is Jesus does not dispute that. He does not dispute that the law says that. It's in there, absolutely. But here's how he handles it. He says, okay, let's, let's have a stoning party, but here's how we're going to do it. How about we let the person without sin cast the first stone? And of course, none of them are without sin, and they have at least enough self-awareness to know that. And so one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away, and, and they leave this woman to be set free, even though the law requires that she be stoned. Well, you can see why people would look at something like this and say, this is lawlessness. He's just getting rid of, he wants to abolish the law. Probably my favorite example involves another woman who it says she had an issue of blood. Now, in the Jewish law, whenever a woman went through her time of the month, during that little span of time, she was considered ceremonially unclean. So she wasn't, in, in that little span of time during that time of the month, she wasn't supposed to have any human contact. Even with her husband, if she was married, she had to be kind of quarantined from any human contact. She could go out into public, but if she went to, out into public, she had to wear kind of a special garment to warn people that she was unclean because if she happened to touch anyone or vice versa, then that would render them unclean. And then they'd have to go through this inconvenient purification ritual before they could enter back into human society. But that was kind of a normal way of life that people lived by. But that was for people who, who their bodies function normally. In this situation, there's a woman in this episode, it says she has an issue of blood, which, which was a constant flow. There was something wrong in her body. There was a constant flow of blood for 12 years. And during that entire time, she was quarantined. 
Now, enter into that. We were all going nuts when we were quarantined for a few months. And that was terrible, wasn't it? Human beings are not made to be isolated like that for long periods of time. Here's a woman who's been quarantined for 12 years. No human contact whatsoever. Barred from human society. And yet she hears about this Messiah figure who's been going from town to town and every person he touches gets healed of whatever their condition is. He's even raising the dead. And she hears about this man, yet what's she going to do? She's quarantined and she's not allowed to touch anybody. Well, she's just way too desperate. And so she does something radical because desperate people do radical things. And she says, I'm going out there. And she finds out where Jesus is, and she leaves her house, and she chooses not to wear that special garment to warn people that she's unclean. She breaks the rules. And she locates Jesus. Jesus is moving from town to town. There's a huge crowd around him. They're all pressing up against him. But she's thinking to herself, I've got to get to that man. I've got to touch the hem of his garment. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know he'll heal me. And so she just plows through the crowd. Every person she touches, she's making unclean. And yet she just breaks the rules. She doesn't care. She's too desperate. And she plows through the crowd and she stretches out and she's able to touch the hem of his garment. The moment she does, the flow of blood stops in her body. She's healed. But Jesus senses that something has flowed out of him. The power of God's flowed out of him. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, dude, everybody's touching you. There's a whole crowd pressing up against you. But this woman would have known what he was talking about. And just imagine what it would have been like. She's terrified. Because look at what she's done. She has broken every rule in the book. She's left home without that special garment, even though she's unclean. She has push through just about every person she can in this crowd, making every one of them unclean. And on top of all of that, here's Jesus, this rabbi, this holy man that she has touched and made him theoretically unclean. So she's horrified. But what's fascinating is Jesus doesn't get angry with her. He commends her and says, great is your faith. And she walks away healed. And here's the cherry on top of the whole thing. Even though Jesus is now theoretically unclean because this unclean woman has touched him, he doesn't go and wash himself immediately. He just continues on with his ministry. So you can see why, to the religious leaders, it looks like Jesus is breaking the rules because you know what? He kind of is. Several times, in fact, Jesus seems to take an Old Testament teaching and he even replaces it with one of his own. Probably the most famous example, we'll get to this in a few weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, is when Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that said. Where did they hear that say that? Heard that said? They heard it in the law. It's right there in the Old Testament. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, I'm telling you something different. I don't want you to do it that way. Here's what I'm telling you to do. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Bless your persecutors. Now, do you understand how radical this was? Nobody talked like that. In fact, there are are Jewish rabbis today 
who comment on that. I've seen comments where they say they have huge problems with what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount because here's, here's the reasoning. They say only God has a right to talk like that. Well, that's precisely the point. So think about how ironic this is. If you're going to follow Jesus faithfully, you're going to have to break some Old Testament rules. At least that one. No exacting vengeance. So having said all of that, when we come back to this passage, how do we reconcile the fact that here Jesus says, don't think I've come to get rid of the law. Don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've actually come to fulfill it. How does that work? If Jesus, on virtually every page of the Gospels, is breaking tradition and breaking convention and blowing people's minds, then how can he do that on every page of the Gospels and yet in this sermon say, there is not one letter, not one stroke of the letter of the law that's going to pass away until it's all accomplished? How does that work? How do you make sense of that? Well, that's the end of my sermon. No, no. Here's the thing. There are two ways of fulfilling the law. The first way of fulfilling the law is to do it like the Pharisees attempted to do it. And that is to try to meticulously comply with every single law. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament, and the Pharisees wanted to be perfect and keep every single law as best they can. They wanted to do it perfectly. And, of course, that is a futile pursuit. But the other way of fulfilling the law is to fulfill the heart and the intention behind it. And that's really what Jesus is after when he says, here's what it all boils down to. Here's what the law and the prophets hang upon. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. That's the heart of it. I want to show you this passage, a very, a very important one, where Jeremiah is talking about, he's prophesying the coming of the new covenant. And here's what Jeremiah says in chapter 31. Verse 31, and then we'll scoot over to verse 33. Jeremiah writes this, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 33, he says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now this passage right here, is extremely important if we're going to understand what Jesus means when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, and your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because what Jesus wants to do, listen very carefully, what Jesus wants to do is not just deal with what lies on the surface of our lives and modify our outward behavior to comply with an external set of laws. No, what Jesus wants to do is take the heart and the intention behind the law, which is about loving God and loving one another, and he wants to take that and write it on our hearts and transform us from the inside out. Because I'm going to tell you the truth. You can get everything to look exactly right on the outside of your life and look like a Christian, talk like a Christian, behave like a Christian, relate to people like a Christian, and yet still have a heart filled with wickedness and evil and pride. But at the same time, Jesus knows that if I can get your heart transformed by the love of Calvary, then sooner or later, that heart change will work its way out into every extremity of your life and everything changes from the inside out. 
And you see, this was a totally different way of looking at the law, but it was foundational for the early Christians, and that's why they wrote about it all over the New Testament. Look at this passage in Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through 10. Paul writes this, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling, it's the fulfilling of the law. So this is the bullseye right here, to love like this. If we can shoot for this, then everything else that we need to get done is going to get done. But if we don't aim for this, if love is not the bullseye of our life, if something else, if self-righteousness, if, if anything else is the bullseye of our life, then no matter whatever else we do get done, it's not going to matter because you haven't fulfilled the intention of the law. Love is the beginning and the middle and the end of everything. I want to show you these two verses. These, these two will not be on the screen. But Paul says this in Colossians 3. He says, above all, everybody say above all. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all, everything. He says, clothe yourselves with love. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, everybody say above all. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. So you have your opinions about theology. Great. Put love above that. You have your ideas about politics. Fine. Put love above that. Amen? When you see certain kinds of people and you have these little, sometimes judgmental thoughts enter into your brain, Put love above those judgmental thoughts because love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, that means everything. Whatever else you've got going on, whatever else you believe, whatever other ideas and thoughts you have, put love above that. Put on love. Clothe yourselves with love. Wrap it around you and don't take it off. It's the most important thing. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 14. This one will be up on the screen. He says, let All that you do be done in love. Everything that is done needs to be under the umbrella of love. So our behavior is to be ruled by love. Our attitudes are to be ruled by love. Our thought patterns are to be ruled by love. The way we treat people and interact with people, every conversation I have with a coworker, it needs to be ruled by love. And if I will make love my bullseye, if I will aim for love in, on, in every single day of my life, in every moment of my life, in every conversation of my life, if I'll make love the bullseye, I will be well on my way of living the kingdom life. So the most important question we can ask ourselves no matter what we're doing is, is this consistent with love? What I'm thinking right now, what I'm saying right now, what I'm doing right now, is it consistent with love? Does it express love? Is it motivated by love? Now, the Bible does not speak about love in an abstract way. It gives us a perfect, concrete definition of what love is. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down 
for our brothers and sisters. What is love? Love is, um, love is ascribing worth to another at cost to ourselves. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. He's ascribing unsurpassable worth to every single one of us. How do we know that? Because he pays an unsurpassable price on our behalf. And so here's, what, here's how all this works. And this is, what I'm, this is why I'm promoting this prayer school because I, I think this is gonna be a huge part of, of our church as we move forward and it's gonna really help people. It's first of all, in prayer and in solitude and in silence, we absorb the love of Christ every day. We, we allow Calvary love to fill our lives and we allow it to transform our hearts in prayer so that we can then replicate that love to one another on a daily basis. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Just leave that up there for a moment. So it's pretty clear that for Paul, if you want to imitate God, you got to imitate Christ. And Paul tells us what that looks like. He says, live in love. That means as long as you're alive, it's the right time to love. As long as you've got a pulse in your body, it's the right time to love. As long as you've got brain waves in your skull, it's the right time to love. As long as you've got breath in your lungs, it's the right time to love. There's no off button to this. It doesn't matter what the merits are of the person standing in front of you, whether they're a friend or an enemy, whether they want to bless you, or if they intend you harm, it's the right time to love. Live in love. There's no off button. And ground zero for how we learn to do this is right here in the local church. I know God works everywhere, but the local church body is the epicenter of God's activity in the world. Right here in this church community, this is ground zero for how you and I are going to learn how to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is what we're about. If you sum it up in one sentence, that's what Village Church is to be about. Loving God and loving people. That's the bullseye right there. And I'm going to tell you something. If we can learn how to make that the bullseye of everything that we do here at Village, then everything else we need to accomplish is going to get done. But if we make anything else the bullseye, then there isn't anything else worth doing because it's going to be worthless. One more passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to close. Look at what uh, Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now here's the thing about this passage. There's some pretty good things in here. You know? Speaking in tongues of mortals and of angels, that's a, that's a wonderful gift. But if it's not done in love, it's worthless. Having all prophetic powers, you know, the, having the ability to preach and just bring conviction on everybody, that's a wonderful thing. But if it's not done in and anchored in love, then it's just irritating noise. 
understanding all mysteries and having all knowledge. You know, you, you may have the ability to explain the Trinity to a five-year-old. You may have the ability to parse every single verb in the original languages of the Bible. And that's impressive. But if it's not anchored in love, if it's not done in love, it's worthless. You know, having faith to move mountains. I mean, any of this stuff that Paul says in this passage, if you have this in your life, you'll be on the cover of Christianity today. You'll be the pastor of a mega church. You'll be famous. But as impressive as all these things are, they're altogether worthless unless they're done out of love and in the purpose of extending love. Which means this, listen, love is the one single kingdom value giver. Love is the one thing that brings value to anything we do. No matter whatever else we do, love is what gives that action value. But no matter how impressive anything we do is, if it's not anchored in love, then it has no value in the kingdom whatsoever. So the ultimate measure for how a church is doing has got to be this, are we learning to live in love together? And I, I cannot fix the history of Christianity as painful as sometimes hearing about it and reading about it can be. I can't fix that. I can't fix the church in America. I can't fix the church around the world. I cannot even fix the world itself, and neither can you. But what we can do right here is we can pledge to be different. And we can pledge to be faithful and make love the bullseye of what we do. And that's what I want us to do. And let's help one another do that. Here's my assignment for you this week. Last week I gave you an assignment. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, Pastor Wade gave Psalm 23 two weeks ago. And then I, Ryan Post, gave another assignment last week. And it was as you're driving down the street and you're seeing people on the sidewalk, just pray a blessing over them, right? Now, here's my assignment for this week. I want you to think about one, two, or three people. One to three. I want you to think of someone who you have the most trouble loving. Whether that person is someone in your life, don't say their names out loud, um, or whether it's someone you don't know personally, maybe it's a national figure, maybe a political figure, don't say their names. But whoever it is, whether it's somebody you know personally or somebody in the news, think of somebody who angers you the most, who grieves you the most, who frustrates you the most. And commit to praying for that person every day until your attitude changes towards them. Just pray, Lord, bless them be with them, call their names out, say their names. Lord, bless so-and-so, and may your purposes be revealed in their life. And pray for that person every day until your attitude changes about them. You may have to do it every day until the end of your life, and that's okay. But it's one of the most powerful things you can do. And, and it's also a very difficult thing to do because sometimes if I'm praying for this particular person, man, I'm, it's, it's crucifying my ego, it's crucifying my pride, it's crucifying my self-righteousness, which is all the more reason why I need to do it. And I'm telling you, this is a simple, but it's one of the most transforming activities. I am a living testimony of what that can do. I've had enemies in my life 
And I've only been able to forgive and move on because I've practiced things like this. And as much as I didn't want to, in prayer, I knew that the heart of Christ was calling me, Lord, bless this person. Bless them. You died for them. They're made in your image. They have unsurpassable worth in your eyes. Bless them. And on a daily basis, when you practice that, I promise you, you're giving space for the Holy Spirit to do something deep in your heart. And it makes reconciliation possible. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.